Welcome to the Jesus Said Love podcast. This is a space where we talk about what it means to awaken hope and empower change. Listen, for over a decade, Em and I have been fostering relationships with men and women who've been impacted by the commercial sex industry. And it's through those relationships that Jesus Said Love was born. We figured it was time to talk about what this ministry has taught us and is still teaching us along the way. I promise it's gonna be a place of conversation and story. And we hope you learn something new. Maybe you see something in a new way. Fun fact, you're gonna hear music because Brett and I are musicians. Yep. We can't just talk, nope. we gotta sing and play too. We do. Here's the deal guys. Our hope is that as you hear these stories, that you'll tap into your own story and that you'll be encouraged to live and love well like Jesus. Hey, Emily. <laughs> I'm already laughing. Why are you already? <laughs> if, if you, you know, if our listeners could have been here just five minutes before, it was like the best pre-show kind of. Maybe we should do an Insta video of our pre-shows. That'd be good. <clears throat> I'm glad to be here today, though. I'm too. We like missed last week. I we was did. in Utah at the basketball deal. Mm-hmm. And Man, all the, the drama. Yeah, if you don't follow us on social media, you need to because you get all the real life with kids and sports do you antics. Tell, do you want to tell the hotel story? Oh, the hotel story or the uniform story? This all happened within Well, let's start hours. with the hotel story because it leads into the uniform story, which really levels the playing field. So I'm at home, Brett's in Utah with our youngest son and Gus. And I get a call as I'm sitting down to watch a very like suspenseful movie. We're watching Get Out with the teenage <laughs> daughters and it's ominous. There's lightning in the distance outside. So the whole night was just a little bit like, ooh. And I get a call at 10 p.m. and from your your number. So I'm like, hey, babe, y'all get y'all make it to the hotel? And it's Gus screaming on the other end, bawling, crying, going, I can't find dad. He's been gone 20 minutes and he doesn't have his phone. And he said he would come back. And I'm in the hotel room alone. I'm like, my morbid thoughts kick in. I'm like, he's dead. He's in an elevator shaft. He's had a, and I said, Brett, I said, Gus, what was the last thing your daddy said? He said he was going to the lobby to get some water. I said, okay, can we take a deep breath? Are you okay? I mean, it was just pure panic. And I was terrified. This is where I come in. So I am standing in the lobby um, waiting to pay for my water because there was a (laughs) long line. So I was down there maybe 10 minutes. And all of a sudden I hear the... Lady at the front desk answered the phone. Hello, such as a hotel. Pause, pause, pause. Brett Mills? And I looked at her with open eyes, and she goes, is that you? And I said, yeah. She goes, it's your wife. I'm like, what is happening? So, hello, Emily. You, where are you? Our son is scared out of his oh, mind. I had what called, are you doing? I was about to call, like, all of our connections for human trafficking victims, like, including, like, U.S. Marshals, to do... <laughs> A search well, then I look on up, the grounds then I for look my up husband. And here comes the coach oh, of yeah. the team Already walking called the coach. towards me. <laughs> so that so then I get on my we have our text thread with our good friends and she's oh, yeah. issued I'd a send out a prayer stage alert stage five prayer alert. prayer alert. Oh yeah. Panic. I just went to get water. Yeah. And apparently you'd only been gone ten minutes, but in Gus's little mind, he was clearly in panic mode. So that happened at ten. Then at midnight I found his uniform. That he needed the next morning in the dryer. Amazing. Uniform 
in Texas while so anyway craziness we got it situated which Good I will coach. I will say this as as a one and when she was sending us off she had packed the bag and she oh. had said here I don't know what you guys would do without me. Oh yeah, but everything is in oh, here. Oh yeah. So after I, I got, gave him, I gave him I got the what the for hell, the talking to about <laughs> leaving our son in the room to go get the water. Oh my god! I thought to myself, this is so great. She left the uniform, mm-hmm. and, and you were happy about it. Weren't I you? was secretly happy. Yeah. And I wanted to go. Hey, remember that part where you said, "What would we do without you?" But I didn't because I'm a good husband and I'm a healthy eight and did not (laughs) use that as a weapon of mass destruction. So was Gus the kid who had the taped numbers on a white t-shirt? No, actually his name was (laughs) Gus Pierce for the week because (laughs) he had to use a different guy's uniform. So parenting, win and fail, and Gus is going to have counseling at some point in his life probably. So, Oh my gosh. Emily, tell us about our... Guest today. I'm so excited because the other, the third voice you've been hearing in this uh, conversation is a friend and an artist whom we met, I guess, about five plus years ago because it was around our first Wild Torch fundraiser. Ty Clark. We want to welcome Ty to the show. Um, And it was a really, we had a mutual friend who knew of the work that we were doing and she really recommended you as somebody who me, who me, who we might want to partner with. Little did we know that we would really just fall head over heels in love with the work that you do in the world, the spaces you create, the intentionality with which you create your work, and then just the story of your life and your journey and how you use that to inform your art. So we're going to talk all things art and maybe even your journey into it. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, Ty, just tell us who you are, what you do, what's the space you take up in the world. You're, you're more than even just an artist for the visual arts. I mean, you're, you're producing movies now, which we'll talk about later. Mm -hmm. Um, And he's a baller. Oh yeah. You have like this really interesting journey. So yeah, tell us who you are. Uh, yeah, it's a crazy journey. Um, I'll bet my wife would hope that it was a little more focused. Right, than, <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, although I've been there, so it's not like things haven't been focused. But I guess, I mean, I'm an artist, number one. I'm a painter, abstract expressionist painter, but I also do work in film. Um, I also write. Mm-hmm. Um, so I spend a lot of time writing and working on, whether it's poetry or books, um, things like that. And I'm I don't know. I kind of say I'm a I'm a self-proclaimed almost like historian mm-hmm. or musical elitist mm-hmm. or you know all those terms you would oh, give yeah. yourself. You do throw down some you fantastic do. musical <laughs> options yeah. that people might go, "Who is that? That's not on 97.5." <laughs> mm-hmm. So I spent a lot of time studying as well as creating. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I've worked in the nonprofit space for mm-hmm. years and right. social justice areas mm-hmm. in fashion, mm-hmm. marketing and graphic design, art direction, um, film now, which we'll mm-hmm. talk about later. I mean, I've really been all over the map, but yeah. I, I think it's been this road of, I have so many things that I love, mm-hmm. but I also know that my end road was to paint and mm-hmm. be an artist full time. So I had to do a million and one different things to get mm-hmm. there. And all those things prepared me for basically being my own business at yes. some point and not really struggling through all the things that are really difficult for artists to, yeah. to learn. So tell us a little bit about your journey into art because you were also a college athlete. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're this athletic type who also has this really, um, 
like a soul, like a really soulful person as well, which sometimes those two worlds don't tend to overlap a whole lot. So you kind of hold this interesting tension between those two things. Um, so what was your journey like into the arts? Yeah, well, both of those worlds existed for me since I was small. So the mm. sports side and, and the art side. Mm. So I had, you know, on both sides of my family were athletes mm-hmm. from collegiate athletes to minor league baseball mm-hmm. to, um, I mean, just sports in general. So both sides of the family had athletes. My dad's side had athletes and surfers. My mom's side were baseball, basketball, mm-hmm. and pretty much everything. But on my mom's side of the family, her older brother, who was 20 plus years older than her, was a world-renowned sculptor, mm, that's um, right. potter and raccoon artist, and he yeah. showed all over the world. So Hold cool. on, I, gotta I stop remember you this Can story. You? Yeah. I'm an idiot. Yep. I was in the band. <clears throat> raccoon? So raccoon is an ancient form of pottery where... It's basically your kiln, the way that you fire your mm. your ceramics or, okay. you know, to cook it in the end is done in the ground. And so it's an uncontrolled process. Oh, wow. So you can't really control the heat. Mm. So when you put your glaze or your patina on your pot and then you put it in the ground to fire it, you don't know how it's going to come out. So it's a mystery. It's a mystery. Mm. Um, and and there's, there's some really cool mm. things That's in that it. process mm-hmm. of it goes in the ground one way, it comes out another. Mm. Um, and so he worked at... University of California, Santa Barbara, Mm -hmm. and was the chair there for Mm -hmm. a long time at the arts department um, and showed all over the world. But he passed, gosh, I think I was probably nine or 10. So I only had a few chance meetings with him. So cool. But I knew that there was this DNA because Mm. I was always painting and drawing and creating and won my first art show when I was four Mm. Seriously. Um, which is a really fun story. I'll tell it because my mom, it's her Please. favorite story. I love this. <laughs> but I always used to draw animals on napkins at the dinner okay. table. And I would give them scientific names and like, you know, describe these stories about these animals when I was four. Well, my mom quilted. Uh, so she took these drawings, oh, wow. put them on a quilt, wow, entered cool. it in the California State no. Fair, and it won grand prize. Stop The California, the whole state yeah. fair. Uh-huh. Wow. What do you get for that? I don't know. You I get some Monet? I think we got a ribbon. Uh, well, I don't know. This is what, 78? Yeah. <laughs> That's wow. awesome, dude. Um, so 1978, first art show win. Um, I have the quilt to this day, too. That is really rad. So I think it was just like, it was DNA number one. Mm-hmm. Um, my grandfather always taught me about art. Um, in a book that I just finished this year, I tell the story. I use my story, fictional. And I told the story of this kid who would stand in front of this a library of mm-hmm. books in his grandfather's house and what I would do. Mm-hmm. And I remember it to this day and just look at these huge, the coffee table, mm-hmm. Smithsonian books and art, art history of America and world history of art. And he would sit on, sit me on his lap and just teach me about art and poetry. Mm-hmm. And would you say that's why in your own home today, it's so important that you have, I mean, I remember the first time I came into your house, you freshly renovated and there's this magnificent room with mm-hmm. books everywhere, mm-hmm. but they're, it seems like they're very intentionally placed. I mean, it's, it's an art piece in and of itself. It's No, they're all by genre. That genre. It's amazing okay. to see. And you've posted on your Instagram yeah. a lot. It, it's just, so there's, do you think that's where that One, came from? 100%. And I have a lot of his originals. So there's books, mm. Keats and Shelley and, you know, poetry books from, that are literally late 1700 prints wow. that were my grandfather's that I still to this day will go in and just open them up and smell because mm. it smells like mm. their house. That's so cool. Wow. What do you think the, um, there's a tension that we grow up with between a, 
what, what I believe is an innate because we're created in goodness and in beauty. Mm-hmm. So we have a natural propensity and quest for beauty and goodness on the earth. But then um, the world that we live in is so dominated by performance and success. Sure. And so when I say the two tensions between full-time artist and athlete, a lot of athletics is based around a performance mentality. Mm-hmm. And so I think even think as children growing up in America, right, like, or any culture for that matter, there's certain standards of performance and what success means. And sure. how, do you, how do you navigate that? You know, um, you saw this beauty in your grandfather. You saw this kind of like abandonment toward creating and, and crafting and, um, yeah. And then, but you, you also have to work, right? Work is Mm -hmm. not bad. Sure. Work is good. But then how do we balance that? Man, that's a, that's a tough one. I mean, I think it's weird because at 12 years old, I was broken, like Mm -hmm. emotionally and physically Mm -hmm. broken through really heavy trauma. Yeah. And I think when you go through a really heavy and serious trauma, the way that those things Mm -hmm. that you described uh, are perceived are very different than somebody Mm -hmm. that hasn't gone through serious trauma or or been broken. And I think like as far as performance is concerned, like I never felt like I had to prove anything to anybody. Mm. I always just felt like I had to prove it to myself. Mm -hmm. And so there was this extra, I feel like there was an extra burden of working Mm. harder than everybody else. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because of that trauma for myself. It was like, I'm not going to let this Mm -hmm. get in my way, even though it was constantly getting in my way. Yeah. Um, emotionally throughout, you know, the next 20 years or so. And so I think like, I just, when it came to sports and it came to art, like I knew my goal and Mm -hmm. I was going to be the best I could be at either one of them, mm-hmm. but I always knew for some reason, as much as when you're a kid, sports is everything, mm-hmm. you know, and anything yeah. else takes a backseat. Sure. Um, but I always had this thing in my head of, I want to write and create art someday, mm-hmm. no matter what it takes to get there. Would you say that you felt, um, and I wonder this too, I, my childhood is broken in pieces with, um, childhood sexual abuse. And so for me, recovering my mm-hmm. story, meant constantly pursuing goodness and beauty. And some of that was because I felt so defective mm-hmm. in and of like something I'm not going to stop just there with myself. I've got to pursue it somewhere yeah. and somehow find the beauty, you know? And, um, would you say that when you were creating art, that there were spaces, even as a child, that while you knew you were good and naturally wired and gifted in sports, that you, something came alive in you in that artistic space? Man, it's weird that you say that because I think we had opposite okay. ends of that, it. which definitely, yeah, you know, totally. we all experience trauma and trauma and recovery differently. And I think, you know, I started finding that probably in my early twenties mm-hmm. where there was like a pursuit to find beauty and, mm. and things like that. But before that, it was almost a pursuit of destruction. Okay. Like I was going to work so hard to get there yeah. that nothing, you know, family didn't matter. Uh-huh. Certain, you know what I mean? Certain yeah. friendships matter, but everything else was wayside. It was like, this yeah. is my pursuit and I'll do anything I can uh-huh. to get there. And it was a real destructive process because even though I'm pursuing, like trying to be great at something uh-huh. because all those other things had no importance, 
Like mm-hmm. what's holding you together? Mm-hmm. Because you can't do it yourself. Mm-hmm. Like that's impossible. Right. Right. And so not having those things to rely on or to kind of keep me mm-hmm. from becoming so fragmented, like it was a destruction. It was a road mm-hmm. to destruction. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it almost got there. Mm-hmm. Like I just think to this day, you know, if it wasn't for the God I believe in, like mm-hmm. I literally would not be sitting here on this couch today. Right. Did you have a moment? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I Can had, you take us there? Yeah. I mean, I had, I had severe drug and alcohol and suicidal mm. moments like for a few years. Mm. Um, I had some that were, you know, those blackout mm-hmm. out of nowhere. You have no idea you're about to do something, but friends were there and pulled you aside and wow. sat in your room the whole wow. night to make sure you were safe. Um, so I can credit, you know, something brought those friends totally. along to be in that room in that moment mm. and to literally sit by the bed mm. until the next day when I woke up, Wow, you know, and then it was a coach. Yeah. That as I was having severe panic attacks mm-hmm. and things like, which is pretty embarrassing when you're a collegiate athlete yeah. to sit in the middle of a study hall with yeah. your teammates and have a full blown panic attack. Yeah. You know, those things are, that's embarrassing yeah. for, a, especially for a male right? Um, in your male dominated scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a coach that basically saved my life. Wow. Um, luckily he had a family counseling Masters. Okay. And so, you know, he pulled me aside and knew what was happening and wow. just took me under his wing and loved me. Wow. Um, and then, you know, through that, I had a moment. I mm. literally was, I, I was in bed one night and I don't share this too often, okay. but I was in bed one night and next thing I know, I felt like I was floating mm. like two mm-hmm. feet above my bed mm-hmm. and I was drunk. I was, mm-hmm. you know, I was a mess and I just got slammed from this two foot above the bed moment into my bed. And I just heard this voice that said, I'm real. Mm. All you know about me is real. And I fell on my face and just wept for hours. Mm. And so it was like, I wasn't pursuing anything. Uh I was, well, I was pursuing destruction. Yeah. But I knew, I knew if I didn't start making some changes in my life that things were not going to end well. Mm. I was going to end eventually. Do you feel like the pursuit of destruction was to numb the pain? Oh, 100%. Absolutely. You know, you don't realize these things until you start going through the healing process. Like, oh, I did that because of these things. In the moment, you're not thinking, no, oh, I have this pain. I need to numb it. I'm going to go smoke weed or take cocaine or whatever. Yeah. You just do it. Yeah. Mm. Mm -hmm. Um, I was just reading this morning. I didn't plan to even use this, but it speaks so much. This morning, I was um, reading from an author that I like, Richard Rohr. And he says, monkey minds are constantly self-referential, and that's entirely too small a reference point for any big truth mm. or great love. He says, your life is not about you. You are about life. Mm-hmm. And so it's so fascinating to me that a lot of times as we're trying to pursue what we think we're supposed to be pursuing, we're too small of a reference point for that. Right. Always. Yep. And so like the faithfulness of life, which for us we believe, of course, Christ being the way, the truth, and life. It's like, if Christ is life and life is deter- and life is good, right? Mm-hmm. Like Christ is good, life is good, then I have to trust that all these broken things that have kind of led me along, I'm not the reference point for right. that. And I can look to... And sometimes it, it is those moments that just slam in your face like, wow, thought, thought I was the the point here that yeah. was determining every single thing, but something bigger and greater is my true self is mm-hmm. calling after me. You know, that's a beautiful moment. Um, does, does your, how does that then from that point on start 
determining like where do you go from there? Yeah, I think that's I think that's the hard one because you know all of our journeys when we experience trauma they're all long. Mm-hmm. Um, you're never fully healed. You're always healing, right. um, and you're and I think you can say I'm okay, mm-hmm. but I'm still not okay. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like there's this double entendre there where it's like yeah I'm okay but I'm not okay because you're never going to escape moments Mm -hmm. it's learning how to handle those moments when they arrive because they do arrive your whole life Mm -hmm. you know it doesn't matter where you are in the healing spectrum you're going to have moments where those memories come back Mm -hmm. and it's how you've built in that time up to that next moment Mm -hmm. to how you can handle it when it arrives Mm -hmm. and I think the really hard part is a few years ago because I don't ever talk about my trauma or I hadn't for a long time, close friends, you know, things like, like really close friends, those things. And then one day I just felt like, you know what, there's, there's so many victims who don't have a voice. And I just felt like I've got to start being a voice for the victims because if, if us victims who have the ability to be a voice don't step up, like then that's one less person representing the victims and being a voice for them because we know that it's a small percentage of victims who have the strength inside to be a voice and to share their story. And they don't all have to. Right. But somebody needs to. Yeah. And so I started being more vulnerable with my story <laughs> um, and just the response mm-hmm. for the people that haven't had a voice has just been so incredible. And, and I use that at times in my artwork mm-hmm. um, in my writing as well and being really vulnerable with my voice mm-hmm. and where I am in that healing process and these memories. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's, you know, there's joy in the healing, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of wreckage too, mm-hmm. you know, and it's really how do we sail amongst that wreckage mm-hmm. and make those joys more mm-hmm. prominent? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, difficult and we all yeah. learn at a longer time yeah um or it takes a lot longer in a lifespan to really get to certain places i love that you're and you're so right that a very small percentage of of victims really begin utilizing their voice in terms of what they've been through and it's absolutely not an expectation you mm-hmm. know we know right. even in our organization that there will be some women who want to give back and become survivor leaders within Mm -hmm. the work of JSL, but that is not the expectation for all of them. But I think what's incredibly unique as well is that we're finding more and more men step forward Mm -hmm. with their story. And, um, and it's not easy for women either, but it's especially not easy for men because of what we have laden you guys with Mm -hmm. in terms of your stories of trauma or abuse and in certain ways. And, and it's just so powerful because I will say as a woman, like we need your voices, like collectively side by side Mm -hmm. as humans, because that's our only way forward. It's not just for women to have all the voice or for males to have all the voice, but for each of us to own our stories in a really beautiful and tangible way. So well, I think it's easy too for men to minimize the things that they've gone through as well. Oh, yeah. Sure. You know, it, it's, Oh, our trauma is not that right. Because that's worse than what, well, you know, than what happened to me. Well, trauma is trauma. Yeah. And, and it's effects on you, your body, your mind, your soul are the very same equivalent things. And so I think for men to, to not hide behind minimizing, um, their pain is important. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's part of the healing process. Mm-hmm. And, and that doesn't have to be a public thing. Sure. Right. right. And I think, I think that's the thing too, is that men 
often think about, and I know I did myself, is like, oh, if I start talking to people like this, like everybody's going to know. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like, no, you know, it's the same thing with my art. Like when I paint my studio, like nobody sees it, mm-hmm. but I still have this fear of, oh, that painting's not very good. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's mm-hmm. like, well, wait, why am I even worrying about that? Because nobody's going to see this painting unless I show it to them. Right, right. So if I'm able to <clears throat> go to counseling or have a friend that I can talk to about this past trauma, mm-hmm. like nobody's going to know outside of this, this mm-hmm. specific relationship and the importance on that road to healing of being 100% open with what mm-hmm. happened yeah. or that experience, you know, and not holding bits back, just being, mm-hmm. that vulnerability is huge. Mm-hmm. Well, and then it's not your fault. Yeah, absolutely. And so, they're, therefore, they're, mm-hmm. you know, that measure of shame, that it's almost like we place it on ourselves mm-hmm. because we think, oh, well, I'm weak because I was in that position. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, that's... Bullshit. You were, you yeah, were a child. what that is. I mean, <laughs> right. yeah. yeah, you were a child or you were right. someone overpowered you or whatever. Mm-hmm. You were manipulated. That's mm-hmm. not your fault. Right. And so for us, maybe even maybe we struggle with this more as men to, to release ourselves from thinking, what did I do wrong in that? Mm-hmm. And therefore that's weak. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. no, that's not weak. It's mm-hmm. a false male narrative yes. that's yeah. been placed throughout. I mean, and we're not just talking America, this is placed throughout history. Totally. This yeah. is in literature. This yeah. is, you know, that false male narrative yeah. of, you know, you should be strong enough to overcome anything. So then when you're 40 and you're thinking about something that happened to you when you're 12, mm-hmm. that minds, you know, that's, that sinks in to, mm-hmm. I should have been able to handle myself when mm-hmm. I was, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, owning our stories is powerful and, and what you're creating in your art is a way of, not just recovering your story, but even reframing sure. and like really coming into the story you want to give to the world. Brene Brown says, you know, there's a way to be vulnerable, but not intimate. Mm-hmm. So, so even publicly, when I talk about my story, I mean, there's even things with my family. I'm like, I'm not going to tell you sure. intimate details. That's yeah. just not important right? Um, for you to know that. But publicly I can say, this is my experience as a victim of childhood sexual abuse. This is what it means to recover and for me personally to overcome. Um, I think in the same way with art, there's a way to, it is a very vulnerable process, mm-hmm. but not everyone's allowed into kind of that sure. inner sanctum of what it means for you to, to work it out. We want to take a quick second to tell you about an incredible social enterprise. Lovely Enterprises is the social enterprise of Jesus Said Love, and its aim is reducing recidivism into the sex industry by providing livable wage jobs and launching micro-businesses. So take a listen to Stephanie, one of our entrepreneurs, applying for her Lovely Microloan. Lovely has given me the steps and connections that I need to turn my passion into a business. It's a business that I, as a single mother, can run with ease, all the while teaching my kids some business essentials so that they will go down a different path other than the one that I chose. So check out Lovely online at ourlovelystore.com. We're also on Instagram as Lovely Enterprises and on Pinterest. Or you can come visit us in person at 1500 Columbus Avenue, Waco, Texas. Everything we make and sell is ethically sourced and socially responsible. Listen, if you're a boutique owner, we can also create a wholesale account for you, just like we do with our friends at Magnolia. When you shop Lovely, you literally change lives. So like right now, one of your collections, I think is about recovering. Um, isn't that part of the remembering the t- remembering? Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's the current one. That's the current mm-hmm. one. Yeah. The so current body of work, three bodies of work ago. So two years ago, 
two and a half years ago, I did a series called These Are My Shapes, uh-huh. um, a conversation with someone with a uh-huh. question mark that was me telling my life story. Mm. And so I did about two to four pieces for every 10 years. Mm. So in four year gap, four, well, in four sections, 10 year gaps. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was, a, there was, I think it was pieces 11 through 16 or whatever it was, were the healing years of that mm-hmm. trauma. Mm-hmm. So they were the difficult years. And I took more time on those four pieces than any pieces I've ever done. Mm. They took me about two years to work on, mm-hmm. which is spending time, letting them breathe, mm-hmm. spending time. But they just never felt mm-hmm. right to me. And I mean, they're tacked with marks and cloth and burlap. Mm-hmm. And there's holes in the burlap that kind of are like they're ripping through to these beautiful colors in the background and using that to resemble like how there's been this opening of the mm-hmm. cloth and the burlap and there's something beautiful in there, but you just can't get to it mm-hmm. yet. Mm-hmm. And those pieces, I'll probably never show those pieces, mm-hmm. you know, they, and I, I didn't come to that point until my mentor, uh, Makoto Fujimura, mm-hmm. um, came to my house. He was speaking at Baylor, mm-hmm. came to the studio for a studio visit and we were going through those four pieces and we were looking at work I was doing and I said, can I show you a couple pieces? He's like, sure. So I brought them out and I said, I hate these pieces. These are four mm-hmm. pieces that I just don't like. And he stepped back and he mm-hmm. said, well, that's the first time anybody has ever brought out their mm-hmm. least favorite pieces to me rather than their first. Wow. And he said, so that, that means something right now. So we started going through them. And mm-hmm. he, this is the analogy he used because I shared the story behind him. And he said, we need to figure out as artists how to be like boxers. So mm-hmm. when somebody buys a ticket to go to a boxing match, mm-hmm. the ring is there. They're going to watch the fight but they know they're not allowed in the ring. Hmm. So they're allowed to get close enough to the ring Mm. to experience what's going on, Mm. but they're not allowed to go in Mm. and actually be a part of what's happening. Mm. And he said, so with your story, it's not for everybody, Mm -hmm. but you need to find that way where the audience can come in and see, but they they don't have to know every intimate Mm -hmm. detail. Mm -hmm. So these pieces are just for you. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's your power. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that is you reclaiming, I mean, drawing such a significant boundary and framework for your story is a beautiful power that we have as survivors, you know, did fragments come after that? Fragments was before that. Okay. Before mm-hmm. that. That's one of my favorites. Yeah. That, that came before that series. And so I feel like all of my series kind of tail after each other. So it's the things that I'm in that are kind of influencing me at the tail end and what I've read and thought and written about for months as I'm working on these pieces and studying kind of lead to ideas for the next Mm. thing. And so dealing with fragments where I was thinking of the philosophical question of, are we born fragmented and Mm -hmm. later in life we become more whole or are we born whole and later in life we become more fragmented Mm -hmm. and how these fragments create who we are as people. So then that led me to do, these are my shapes thinking Mm. of, you know, if I were to share my story with an audience, it wasn't paying attention really because mm-hmm. it's hard for people to pay attention right? to <laughs> But I feel like I have these deep truths I can share. Yeah. They're not really listening. How can I get across to them? Mm-hmm. And so that it just, yeah, kind of dovetails into other things. So did you come in, into any big philosophical conclusions? Are we born whole or are we born fragmented? Or is it just the question itself that you live with? I think it's the question itself that we live with because mm-hmm. I think there's Either way, you can look at it and say that if we're born whole and become fragmented, these things that break off become who we are and form this multifaceted Mm -hmm. personality from all Mm -hmm. these different things. But then if you're born fragmented and becoming whole, it's a picture, you know, of just this healing that can happen because 
you know, how broken, how fragmented are you when you're born? You can't mm-hmm. be too fragmented because mm-hmm. nothing's <laughs> happened yet. Mm-hmm. But I think the second you're kind of brought into this world, some fragments are already hey, forming. And what we know now about epigenetics and DNA is just proven that trauma does impact DNA. Yeah. Like you are born with a DNA that's already programmed. Mm-hmm. Well, but you either, know? either way, in either of those directions, you're splintered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You either yeah. start splintered or you end up splintered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at the very end, your pieces. Yeah. So how and why abstract form? And that's, yeah. I mean, I guess that's always been kind of my favorite form of art mm-hmm. since I was a kid. I mean, the, the, the early abstractionists are the guys that my grandfather would always teach me mm-hmm. about. I mean, we'd look at everything from John Singer Sargent to Caravaggio mm-hmm. to, you know, the Michelangelo's, the mm-hmm. Raphael's. But then, you know, we'd always talk about Gauguin and Mm-hmm. Uh, Van Gogh and mm-hmm. Picasso and the early abstractionists. And so like I always knew art. Mm-hmm. I always knew art history well since I was a kid. And But I always drew, because I could draw really well, I wanted mm-hmm. to make everything seem real. Mm-hmm. And so as a kid throughout middle school and high school, I'd do animals and people and figurative stuff and I'd make it look as real as I could was mm-hmm. my goal. And I could do that. And then I got in, one of my high school teachers used to tell me, you need to lose control a little bit because mm. mm. you're a great artist and you have all these different emotional makeups. He could mm-hmm. see right through me. Yeah, He's like, you're an athlete. You love music. Yeah. You have all these things. So what you're drawing isn't representational of who you are. Uh-huh. You are not a controlled person. Yeah. And I did a few pieces in this last series that are called Love Letters to mm. Mario Ferrante, who oh, was wow. that, that art teacher. Wow. And he told me, he said, once you pick up a brush and lose control, Ty, you're going to be a great artist someday. Wow. What a gift. Man. I wish my piano teacher would have told me that. <laughs> she kept telling Follow me, you're too free, you need to be controlled. <laughs> Jeez. Yes. Mm. And so, you know, I, I started, I really wanted to do sculpture and ceramics because of my uncle. And mm-hmm. so I felt like I needed to follow his path. Mm. So I did that for a long mm-hmm. time. And then when I got into college, I picked up a paintbrush mm. one day. And started painting on a huge, like, eight-foot piece of wood, and I never turned back. Mm. Went straight for painting at that point. Mm. And, and I've dabbled with, you know, stencil art and street art and things like that. Mm. But at the end of the day, the abstract expressionists are my soul. Because mm-hmm. for me, as a writer and a poet, mm. what abstract expressionism is doing is taking color and taking texture and taking form and creating poetry. Mm-hmm. So it's, emotion, it's an emotional dance on a mm-hmm. canvas. Mm-hmm. And I think... If you can relay to an audience an emotion through those things, through the movement and the color and the texture and the form in a piece, the same way you would read a Mary Oliver poem or the mm-hmm. same way you would read a Robert Foster or an Emily Dickinson poem, mm-hmm. I don't know, to me that's the most powerful thing. Yeah. So you said uh, you picked up the paintbrush and mm-hmm. you started painting on an eight-foot piece of wood. Yeah. One of the things I love about your art is the size and the different <laughs> sizes. It's not just eight and a half by 11 mm-hmm. or 11 by 14. They're... Some obscure sizes, but there's some freaking massive pieces that you do. And, you know, you use those m- huge paintbrush, mm-hmm. you know, where you have to take two. It looks like a water hose. Yeah. It's like a paint broom. Do you feel like that very first time attributed to the fact that you'd like to do bigger pieces? That's a great question. That may question. be too simplified. About no, I've, I've never really thought about it. I mean, I think, I don't know. I mean, I, I love... I I just love painting big. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, there's something about just a large scale painting Mm -hmm. and it's a lot more difficult Mm -hmm. to paint a large scale painting than an eight and a half by 11 Mm -hmm. because the way that a pencil mark, a pastel mark, Mm -hmm. a brush stroke looks on a small piece of paper, like representational, Mm -hmm. it's a lot different Mm -hmm. than a 15 foot scale canvas. 
So for me, I do a lot of studies and things mm-hmm. as well to work out ideas mm-hmm. and, and motion and things. So when I work on like a 20-inch piece of paper to, and put some mm-hmm. pencil marks on it and I really like it, the challenge is then how do I make that look mm. similar to how I want it to look on a 20-foot canvas? Mm-hmm. I also wonder, too, it takes more, more of your body in a larger sure. piece. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're just sitting down, you're using your hand. Yeah. Yeah, it is but a yeah, physical it, process that more, you go through. More shoulder, more If you more follow arm, Ty on yeah. Instagram, it is, I mean, you're a physical yeah. artist, you know. It's, it's funny. I've had in the last month, I've done a few talks and lectures, and I've had quite a few questions of, you have a basketball and a sports background. Right. And when I watch your videos, you're moving yeah, you're from jumping, the wall. You're, you're putting yeah. stuff on the ground. You're on your hands and knees, and then you're on mm-hmm. the wall again. And, you know, I never really attributed anything to that, but I think... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love, I mean, I guess as an athlete, just that motion and that movement, yeah. it, it should take place in totally. my work and how I paint. Yeah. And you I'll really say, put yourself in it. <laughs> I'll say when you, when you do visit, um, not just one piece, but a body of work that you have created, uh, for the public or for people to, to view, um, there is an energy to it. And I, I have always been attracted to more ab- abstract forms of art, but yours it does not feel static. Uh, not that any art should, or I don't know if should's the right word, but I just don't, ex- I experience even your abstract art being very alive and having very much an energetic quality to it that is palpable. So, um, and I don't know if that's because I just am attracted to abstract form or if that's, because of the physicality and the energy that you put into mm-hmm. it is somehow experienced by people who come, you know, and view it. I don't know. It's just an interesting observation. I also observe too, and I think this is cool. I don't know if this is because Emily and I like you and your art or, but you've influenced our children. Yeah. I, I, think so, back, I, know, I think back yeah, of Sweet Hattie. Hattie, who's 16 now, but yeah. maybe when she was 10 or 11. Yeah. She saw one of your first pieces, mm-hmm. and, and the next thing we know, she has brought out her own. Where she, and I think in that season, you were doing a lot of cloth and yeah. kind of attaching different elements mm-hmm. to the canvas and different colors and things. And so she was kind of mimicking. Well, she what had you were a doing. school project, and so what she had to get permission for. So she goes to a classical school, so they study the classical mm-hmm. forms of art. And so um, the project at school was for her to take the song of Solomon Uh and she had to pick a passage and then do, um, either a poem or a piece of art that represented that piece of, of literature. And so, um, no one in their class had ever said, well, can it be an abstract form of art? And so her professor was like, like it, it has to be intentional. She goes, yeah. Oh, it absolutely will be. Do you know who Ty Clark is? And he was like, no, who is this Ty Clark character. And so she goes, well, he, all of it is intentional, like all the pieces of cloth. And he goes, oh, okay. So you mean when it says the rubies or diamonds or whatever, then, uh-huh. then you would take some form of that and put it in. And so she did, she, she created and Got a great, um, got a great, you know, grade on it. But it was really, it was really cool to see that influence. I mean, th- those are the moments for me that like make, you know, better than a sale. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I yeah, mean. Like, totally. even though we need to sell art to survive sure. and keep making art, yeah. like I had, a, I had a show up here in Waco recently, and I walked in one day. I forget why I was in there to go through some stuff, and there was a class there, mm. elementary school class, and they had ten. 10 or 20 of their, of the kids, little teeny pieces up. Mm. And so when I walked in, uh, the gallery owner said, Oh, this is Ty Clark. He's the artist whose work up. 
is up right mm-hmm. now. And all the kids were like, oh. And so then I started talking with the kids about all their paintings. Wow. And you know how 10-year-olds are. They're going to talk your ear off totally. about their work. you know. <laughs> so then I said, hey, do you guys want to ask some questions about my work? So then for the next, I don't know, 30 minutes, I walked around wow. the gallery with this classroom and was talking to all the kids about the work. And their questions are phenomenal. So phenomenal. Like they're better than most adults' totally. questions. <laughs> because, Agreed. Because, you know, a child's eye mm-hmm. looking at something just has this playfulness and mm-hmm. in- intentionality where adults are kind of trying to be smart when yeah. they ask a question. Yeah. And so I ran into the teacher at the uh, Lost in Waco magazine meeting mm-hmm. the other night. Mm-hmm. And she came up and thanked me. Mm-hmm. And her husband said, I don't know what you did, but thanks for sharing for those kids. Wow. And then pointed at two kids, which I think are were his, and said, because you planted some big seeds. Wow. And I was like, oh. That's, that's it. You know what that's I mean? It. Like, that's it. Listen, I will say this. I remember being eight years old in Friendswood, Texas, and taking a field trip to Lori Whitehead's studio. Lori Whitehead was a watercolor, and she painted, you know, very specific, lifelike deal. But it was water. But it was this, and we walked in, and they, she, you know, it was very cliche. She was with this easel and had the stuff, and <laughs> and it was really cool. And she, I don't know if she ever became famous or not. Probably not. But the point is, as an eight-year-old, I'm sitting here going. That's an artist, and she painted that. I still remember it mm. to this day. Yeah. When we go home and we yeah. drive, she's no longer living. We drive by that studio, which was a lighthouse, a lighthouse and she painted yeah. at the top of the lighthouse. Mm. It's no longer a studio. It's an insurance agency now. <laughs> but I think of her. Yeah. I mean, at 43 years old, I'm still impacted. So kudos mm-hmm. to you, because those yeah. kids are going to remember that when they're adults. Yeah. And I think that's special. Another thing that our kids love about you is that um, you have met some of their favorite <laughs> athletes <laughs> with your new um, movie that you help produce. And so kind of switching gears, but not yeah. really. But t- tell us about Jump Shot. I mean, this is this is wild to me. Yeah, it's a oh, man, it's been such a fun journey. Um, yeah, so. We can now say we're an award-winning film because last month we won the Grand Jury Best Feature Documentary Award at Dead Center Film Festival in Oklahoma City, which is rapidly becoming one of the most critically acclaimed uh, film festivals in the U.S. Uh, What a beautiful team they have. Um, Fell in love with Oklahoma City as Uh well when I was there. Um, But yeah, I came on. Let's see. Jump Shot is a seven-year passion project of one of my best friends, Jacob Hamilton, who is the director and the creator of the film. Uh, We became friends about, I don't know, six, seven years ago Mm. in Austin when we were in Austin. And all of our friends said, you guys need to meet. Mm. Ty played basketball. He's an artist. You're Mm. a filmmaker. You guys need to meet to do Mm. something together. So we met for lunch one day, and he started sharing me this story about Mm. the film, about how he discovered the guy who created the jump shot in basketball in the late Mm thirties and nobody knows who he is. Nobody. He's just a forgotten person. And so we start talking more and more. And I just say, man, if if you want help Mm. on the basketball end, I'd love to just help you make sure all your fundamentals are right. Mm -hmm. If it's going to be a basketball film, you got to get those things right. Mm -hmm. You got to get, you got to have basketball people watch it. That's your first in. And so that just became a really dear friendship. Mm -hmm. And then we met for lunch a few months later, one day, both not knowing what the agenda of the either one was, mm-hmm. and we had mutual agendas of, how can I be a part of this? Yeah. Can, will you come be a part of this? <laughs> and so I came on just as a consultant, uh-huh. but then I ended up helping Jake with everything. Wow. Book, you know, reaching out to my network in the basketball world, yeah. booking interviews, traveling, setting up, 
I mean, doing everything together. And so that eventually worked me into a producer role. Yeah. And you met some of the most famed and incredible players of our day. Yeah, I know Brett's ready to ask some questions. <laughs> I just, I, every time I see time, like, have you talked to KD lately? I mean, you're in KD's house. I mean, that just, not everybody gets that experience. What is that like? I Man, mean, is it just like me coming to your house? I, I can't even tell you how blessed we feel to have had some of these opportunities. Um, one of our executive producers, Mary Beth Menace, who's a brilliant producer, has been a part of some Mm. phenomenal films um she had a connection with the man coach mo Mm -hmm. who is the chaplain for usa basketball Mm -hmm. and he's the head of athletes in action for Mm -hmm. basketball in the u.s as well one of my favorite men on the planet i love this guy okay and she shows him the film and coach mo goes i got some guys who need to see this film and she's like, okay, who? And he's like, well, Katie and Steph have to see it. <laughs> now, at this point, I have been trying for three years oh, yeah. to get Steph or Katie. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I've exhausted friends who used to work for the Warriors yeah. to, I literally had a conversation with the athletic director at St. John's University when mm-hmm. we were filming there. And he said, hey, Ty, if you want to get a hold of Raymond, the PR director mm-hmm. for the Warriors, he gets about 1,500 emails Gosh. plus you know, every hour. <laughs> so oh like, you know, I think 10,000 10, emails a day or something. I don't know. Email him on Tuesday at like 5 PM and you should get to the top of the list by wow. the time he looks at it. And I'm going, it's impossible. I mean, I made phone calls. I've talked, I can't tell you and wow. just exhaustive. And then within one chance yeah. meeting, we're getting ready to head out to Oakland to meet KD. Wow. Unbelievable. And that story's insane because mm. we were going to meet, we ended up getting this, Filmmaker Hotel in Oakland, mm. in the hood. This terrible, just ratted mm. out place. And Katie's basically like, hell, come to you guys. And we're like, yeah, that's probably not a good idea, dude. <laughs> this ain't um, the Four Seasons, yeah, bro. Yeah, I mean, we're, not, we're all going to be sitting on a queen bed, you know, <laughs> watching this. Um, and so he's like, we'll just come to my house then. And Jake and I are like, what? what? Okay, twist <laughs> Seriously? So we go up to Katie's house and, you know, the gate opens and literally, you know, this seven footer, he's, by the way, he's seven feet. It may say six, nine in the books, but he put that in there so he wouldn't be dubbed a center when he came into the league so he could play the position he wanted to. Oh, wow. Because back then, if you're seven feet, you don't get a choice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So anyways, just gives us these big hugs and we go into the house. He's got a couple of his boys there and we go out on the porch and just, I felt like I was just hanging out with a dude, mm. like just a kid who just wow. loves life and loves basketball. And we got deep within about five minutes. Wow. Mm. We all just started sharing our hearts and mm. just opening up about life and living simply and mm. simplifying life and the difficulties of being, mm-hmm. you know, top five greatest athletes in the Gosh. world and the pressures of mm. everybody wanting a piece. Who do you trust? Mm. Who really loves you? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and human, it, I mean, it was, it human, was human questions. It was amazing. So then he goes, let's watch the movie. And we're thinking, all right, let's head up to the theater room. It's going to be awesome. And our director, Jake, goes, where do you want to watch it? And he goes, I'll do it right here. Okay. Jake goes, on my laptop. He's, he went, Jake went pale. Like a filmmaker's oh worst gosh. nightmare is let's, let's watch, watch it. it on my laptop. <laughs> Jake, so Kevin Durant says, oh. let's watch it on your laptop. And Jake's like, okay, because how are you going to say no, no to him? I mean, we're overlooking right. the whole bay on his deck oh in the backyard. Gosh. And so we pop it up on the laptop. Wow. And Katie sits maybe 12 inches from the screen. Huh. The whole film is just in. And there's moments where he goes, can I rewind it? Oh. 
And so he'd rewind these moments. And uh-huh. there's moments where we have Kenny Sailors, our character in the 40s, doing uh-huh. things on the court. And Katie will stop and go, that's what I'm working on right now. Oh, wow. That's the move I'm working on right now. And Kenny's doing it in 1943. What? Who is this guy? Wow. So the film ends. It's, there's some sad moments. So there's tears. And mm. Kevin literally like jumps up from the table, fist in his palm. And he's like, what do I need to do? Wow. What do I need to do to be a part of this? Wow. I mean, it's just magic. I mean, yeah. supernatural, just incredible. That has got to be a crazy feeling to, mm. to to have impacted someone who seems to have mastered the sport. Right. But to even bring something to his table that's mm. eye-opening and inspiring to him mm-hmm. in the midst of his own thing, that's got to be cool. Well, and when you see him in the film, you get a Kevin Durant that you never get to see. Mm. You know, he's he's got a bad rap. Like, for mm. some reason, the media mm. has chosen to give him a bad rap. Yeah. And, yeah, he's made some mistakes here and there, but who doesn't when yeah. you're a kid, right? you know, playing sports yeah. and have a huge limelight on you. But yeah. you get to see this beautiful soul who wow. is emotional, and it's special. It's really wow. special. I love that. Where can we find this film? You can't. Oh, I mean, it's like... <laughs> I mean, we still haven't seen I know. it. We I want to see it We so couldn't bad. get up to Dallas and couldn't do Oklahoma City. So Yeah, we, so summer is blockbuster season for okay. films. So the film festival circuit kind of dies down over the summer because mm-hmm. of blockbuster films. But we'll, we're, we will be in a number of film festivals in the fall. Okay. Um, there's a few that we know we're going to be in, but we can't. they're not announced yet, so we okay. can't really discuss mm-hmm. it. But we'll have multiple film festivals coming up in the fall. Um, and we do have a sales team working on distribution mm-hmm. right now. Okay. Um, and so right now we're just in that waiting period mm-hmm. of, we don't know where it's going to be. We know mm-hmm. eventually it'll be online. It'll, mm-hmm. we'll probably have a small theatrical release. Mm-hmm. We will definitely do something in Waco okay. really fun, Great. um, for our community here. Yeah. Um, because I mean, I want to celebrate these things with my mm-hmm. community more than anything. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Which can we briefly talk about? You lived in Austin, Texas. Well, yeah. when we met you five years ago, you were still in Austin. And yeah. I, I can't forget that moment after the first Wild Torch, which for us felt like hanging on to the end of a crazy dragon, like, you know, and we get to the end of the show and it was a really magical night and it it was beautiful to see a small portion of our community come together on behalf of the work and the vision of JSL and your role in that. And you and Mandy, your wife, you know, mm-hmm. came up and... It was something, I still remember for some reason what Mandy was wearing. She was wearing like a jumpsuit or something really, you know, cool. And, and you had on your, um, your, you know, paint gear uh-huh. and you, you said something or she said something like, we will be back. Like you will, you will see us again. There was something that happened. Well, you guys were a huge part that of night. You guys were a huge part of getting us to Waco mm-hmm. from Austin. I mean, there's a few people here in town that you know we've gotten to know over the years, from the Peel family mm-hmm. to Blake and Kimberly Baston. Like, mm-hmm. there's just numerous kind of relationships we've had with our fashion brand, mm-hmm. and then with my brand Kamek and Austin. Yes. And so we've come through Waco and experienced life here in little ways. Mm-hmm. And um, man, I think. Because Mandy ran into you at the WCon up in Denton. Yes, that's correct. Which was kind of like... Because we grew up together, which is weird. Mandy, Emily, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And you guys ended up I know. growing up together. So weird. And so there were these little inklings mm-hmm. of like things that were being sprouted mm-hmm. of like as we were starting to consider a move from Austin. Mm-hmm. Because we wanted to buy a house, which we had never done. Yeah. And we wanted to build my new art studio on the property. Mm-hmm. And you're not doing that in Austin. Yeah. Mm. 
And we didn't want to live in Round Rock or anywhere. It's like, you want to be in a heart. Yeah, we wanted to have community. Um, I couldn't just move to a small town that didn't have a university. Yeah. Because I want to be in a place where there is new thought and Mm -hmm. there are young minds existing Mm -hmm. as well. Um, And man, we're in Dallas all the time. Mm -hmm. We're in Austin all the time. It's a great place. We're in Tyler a lot because of family. So Waco was kind of that middle road. Mm -hmm. And then when we were talking to my parents about moving, Mm because we're trying to get them to move from Northern California. That sounds really sad. <laughs> Trying to get your parents to move to Waco. <laughs> from the Sierra Nevada mountains. Oh my gosh. They didn't want to move to Austin. They didn't want to move to Hawaii where my brothers are. Mm. Um, and when we said Waco, they I mean, it was a resounding yes without any it's thought. So insane though, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just, that's yeah. amazing. I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful you guys said yes. And really the shape that you have brought to our culture and brought to our community. It's been really, really cool to see kind of who is being brought in to develop where we build from Mm -hmm. here and how we grow. Um, so if we can't see the movie yet, we can follow you on Instagram Instagram. and you're Ty Nathan Clark. Ty Nathan Clark. Mm -hmm. And then jump shot is Jump shot movie. Jumpshotmovie.com. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you can find that on Instagram too. Okay. And website. Can we see your art on your website? Where yeah. can we find you? Tynathanclark.com. Tynathanclark.com. And everything all... that's on my website is on Instagram. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I, I mean, I'm open. I have conversations regularly with people on Instagram. So yeah. I'm and always. And it's you they're talking to, not some rep. Always. Not some... Yep. Yeah. I'm always talking to young artists and established artists and people with questions. Yeah. And I love. I love discussing art. So. And anything new you'll be posting up there as Always. far as like we can we can follow kind of even your work and that's one of the cool things. So you can follow Ty's process as and, well. And if nothing else, if you're like not if you're like well, I don't like art or <laughs> you buy your art at Kirkland's, which don't tell anybody that because that's gross. But <laughs> if you like really cool Instagram accounts, you need to follow Ty because he just does crazy cool things like float through the air. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you float, I still want to know how to do that and you won't do you tell still, me. Do you make your own tracks for kind of your music under there sometimes? No. Okay. Well, sometimes I do. Yeah. Not yeah. always. When I have the time, mm-hmm. I do because it usually takes quite a bit of time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I use a lot of a lot of free music database type mm-hmm. stuff that uh, is legal under Creative Commons yeah. things. So they're all kind of non-known people that are creating tracks for yeah. people to use. So. Which is good. But it's worth the follow. Yeah, just, it's worth the follow. Just to go be inspired. So, and I will say, even if um, you may not consider yourself um, a art enthusiast, um, creativity, and we could have a whole other podcast about this, it, it is important to cultivate creativity mm-hmm. in your organization, Absolutely. in your thoughts. Um, these are things, and, and artists really, even historically, are really agents of change and and new thought in culture and how cities transform Mm -hmm. and history transforms itself. So creativity is something to be valued. And so I think it's it's so important just to learn from other creatives. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to you? This is always kind of our last question. What does it mean to you? We talk a lot about awakening hope and Mm -hmm. empowering change. So you could take awaken hope or empower change, but um, what does it mean to you to do that as an artist? Man, I, I mean, gosh, there's so many things, but I think, you know, number one, being a voice, mm-hmm. um, I think is the strongest thing because like we talked earlier, you know, there are a lot of voiceless people, mm-hmm. um, people who just don't have it inside to be a voice, mm-hmm. but yet I think we all have it somewhere inside of us to do that. Mm-hmm. But some of us have experienced things that really 
have pushed us down mm. to not even wanting to enter that realm. And so I think being a voice for those people, um, for individuals in the arts that, mm-hmm. I mean, the arts are a very introverted mm-hmm. uh, group of people. I'm not introverted, mm-hmm. but a lot of my friends are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just being able to step out and take responsibility for things, even if it sometimes it hurts me mm-hmm. because it's protecting others, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll do it. Um, mm-hmm. I don't really care. I mean, this life is short enough as it is <laughs> that, you know what I mean? Sometimes you have to take some risk yourself yeah. in order to support people that can't jump up and support Mm. themselves in certain ways. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I think being involved in everything. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's hard here in Waco because we don't have a vibrant Mm -hmm. city arts culture, you know, like a Dallas and Austin, Houston, New York and LA. It's, you know, I would say it's, it's less than small Mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. I think it's more individuals doing things than any really organized thing. But there are a number of us in the city that have really started to take those Mm -hmm. things on our shoulders and say, Let's get together and start creating this mm-hmm. and see what happens. Yeah. Um, because at the end of the day, there's no plan for it. Right. Every great arts <laughs> culture happened differently. There's no recipe, mm. um, but it all starts underground. It does yeah. all start on the ground level in the community, mm-hmm. in backyards, mm-hmm. you know, in small places, bringing mm-hmm. the community together. And, and at the end of the day, it's making people comfortable within that yeah. because mm-hmm. art for some reason to people is uncomfortable. Mm. And so it's finding ways to make it comfortable enough to have conversations because not all art is comfortable, right? but you can have comfortable conversations around it, whether you like it or don't like it. Yeah. Um, the existence of those conversations is key. And there's some of us that are really trying to bring that yeah. into. I into love play. that. And I see that. I see, I see you partnering and connecting and showing up for things like even analog and mm-hmm. things like that, that are just these conversation pieces that are starting at the ground level. That's really, really beautiful. Last, that's empowering change for last sure. Last question. Cause we didn't get it in earlier. Is there an Enneagram number that you identify with? Yeah, I'm a four. A four. <laughs> yep. I love it. <laughs> a four. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, thank you, Ty. Yeah, you are an inspiration no, you to us, and you're a gift to the world. Yeah, I appreciate you being here. Yeah, hey, any chance to hang out with you two is uh, <laughs> is awesome. We love it. Um, well, thanks for tuning in, guys. And we just want to remind you if you've got questions, to email us at emily at jesussaidlove.com and brett with two t's at jesussaidlove.com. Don't forget to like us on iTunes. You can also listen on Spotify. Leave us a review. Give us your questions. Follow us on Instagram. All the things. Go to the website, jesussaidlove.com backslash podcast, and you can find notes from this episode, pictures. We'll put some links to all of Ty's greatness, and you can go see his work. And uh, we might even find that picture that, of that painting that Hattie did, so you can oh, see it yeah. and compare. Yeah, yeah. And if you like hers better than Ty's, <laughs> let us know, and you can bid on it. Anything's for sale. Oh, okay. my gosh. Thank you for joining us today, and as always... Remember to share love. Hey, thanks for joining the Jesus Said Love podcast. We are so glad you have chosen to awaken hope and empower change with us. We want to remind you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave us a review Yes, because your voice matters. It's how we get this message into the world. And lastly, be sure to follow Jesus Said Love on Instagram and Facebook for up-to-date info and visit the website at jesussaidlove.com for how you can join the JSL fam. Until next time. Share the love.